0: This meeting is for one hour and 30 minutes tim m will be sharing on how not to die of alcoholism for 60 minutes tim thank you for your service and your willingness to share your life with us we are delighted to have you here with us for the third time at god's meeting tim's made the tbe hat-trick so please help me give a warm welcome to tim from london in the united kingdom his home group is group 12 in San, san antonio texas welcome tim and the floor is yours Thank you very much. Uh, My name is Tim, I'm an alcoholic. And uh, Al-Anon doesn't hurt either. Uh, My date of sobriety is the 24th of July 1993. I first started to give up alcohol in around July 1990. It took three years to uh, put the plug in the jug. I was 18 when I First encountered sufficiently severe problems to need to stop. Um, as I say, it took three years to actually stop. I'm in my fifties now. Um, the topic: How not to die of alcoholism. There are three elements to this. What is alcoholism? What does dying of alcoholism mean? And how do you not do it? Um, now, the first part of that, what is alcoholism? You'd think it would be a straightforward thing to explain in an AA meeting with so many people here who've been in AA for such a long time. I know there are some new people as well, and people who are returning or have been struggling with not drinking but have been in meetings, at any rate, for some time. Uh, I'll. But it's not a straightforward question. Um, you know those, uh, I don't know if you call them optical illusions or, or puzzles, where you have a picture and there is a, lots and lots of numbers and one number is different. And you've got to find the one number that's different from the others. Or where's, depending on which side of the Atlantic put on, where's Waldo or where's Wally? Very hard to find it. Finding the truth about alcoholism within A.A. is like trying to find Wally in one of the Where's Wally pictures or Waldo in one of the Where's Waldo pictures. Because there is so much other material. You could miss it. You could be absolutely forgiven for missing what alcoholism is. And it's very possible to go to many A.A. meetings and not hear a single clear definition of what alcoholism is. Um, I'll give you one example. When I was 10 years sober, at my home group, I, I'd been not going to AA for a couple of years, not solidly going. I hadn't drunk between eight years and 10 years, but I went to maybe 20 meetings over those two years. I got back. I thought, right, I'm going to do this properly. I'm going to go to my home group. And I was troubled by the fact that uh, I wasn't really sure what unmanageability was, and I asked half a dozen people in my home group, and each gave an entirely different answer. What do you do with that? Uh, am I arbitrarily, arbitrarily going to choose which one I am going to deem is telling the truth or being accurate in some way? What authority would I do that? Um, and that's just unmanageability. We haven't even got near physical craving or mental obsession; these other rather difficult terms, because they mean they're used in the Big Book, fine. But what they mean in the Big Book is not what the terms obsession and craving are typically taken to mean in the language in general. So, if you're confused about what alcoholism is, you're in the right place, first of all, uh, and you can be you can forgive yourself for being confused. Uh, I think it was Dr. Bob who said that an AA meeting achieves its purpose only if there is an adequate presentation of the problem and an adequate presentation of the solution. I like the lack of ambition there. He didn't say a sensational presentation, an adequate presentation is sufficient. So your sponsor doesn't need to be sensational your sponsor needs to be adequate if they're adequate they're good enough no need to go shopping for a new one because the higher power can work through inadequacy that's why it doesn't matter but it must be adequate so what is alcoholism sometimes i hear people say i was an alcoholic before i drank now you may have been something before you drank but again it's going to be very confusing it might lead a person to think that alcoholism has got something to do with something other than alcohol um now people are entitled to believe whatever they want to believe and that's fine and if you're very firm in your convictions and beliefs i don't want to dislodge that at all if whatever you believe and think and feel and do is 100 percent working for you let me not disturb one iota of that. If it's working, it's working. But if you are confused about alcoholism, then maybe this will help. Maybe my I have a, an understanding in which I am clear uh, and certain as well, which helps. And For want of a better reference, when I decided to finally get to the bottom of what alcoholism was at 10 years sober, I decided to look at the big book because I thought, well, it was written by the people that founded Alcoholics Anonymous. In fact, the fellowship's name I'm given to understand. I wasn't around then, but my... Uh, sources inform me the name of the fellowship comes from the book. So let's start there. And if that's enough, I'll let it go at that. And you know what it has been. It's been enough as far as understanding the problem is concerned. And it's gone most of the way to what the solution is. The reason it doesn't go all the way is because it points in various directions. On page 88. Eighty seven. It points to there are many useful books also. The suggestions about these may be obtained from one's priest, minister or rabbi. It asks you to form your own relationship with God. So with the solution, it provides a lot of the solution then signposts the rest. But as far as what alcoholism is, my understanding um. Now comes from the big book. I just stick to that, and the twelve and twelve complements it very, very well. And this isn't a step one talk entirely, but it's important to get the basics right. If one doesn't understand what alcoholism is, any discussion of the solution is is going to misfire, because you don't know what it's a solution to. And there's a lot of material. On step one in the big book, which I won't rehearse, what I will do is tell you what it says on on page forty four. So when it's just rounding up its discussion of step one, it says, "Right, let's sum up what we've told you about alcoholism." And it's got a couple of elements, and the two elements are these. When I drink, and I'm going to put it in my own language. The idea is from page 44, but you can go and read that yourself. I'm here, so I might as well put it in my language. When I drink, I drink way too much. Now, I won't come on to the second point just yet. I drink way too much. What's too much? It doesn't mean more than you or more than Sally or more than Bobby. It means too much for me so much that I have consequences footnote you can't tell whether you're drinking too much by asking yourself was I drinking against my will there were times I did but most of the time I wasn't drinking against my will I was drinking entirely in in accordance with my very resolute and concerted will I want a drink I want another drink I want another drink and I will have one What's interesting is I never woke up the next morning wishing I'd drunk more the night before. But I almost invariably woke up the next morning wishing I'd drunk less and not had the second half of the evening. It's the consequences and my regret and my remorse which tell me that there's something fishy about my drinking, specifically because... Each drink seemed in the moment like a terribly good idea. And yet after the event, it seemed anything but. So very clearly, my mind is unstable when I've got a drink inside me. It will tell me that the next drink is a good idea. And when I was launching into the third bottle of wine, or the second bottle of spirits. As I say, each shot, each glass, splendid idea. Yet earlier that day, I'd said to myself, I'm not going to not drink, but I won't overdo it. And yet once I was drinking, I overdid it. I got sick, I became violent on occasion certainly antisocial. I got myself into scrapes. I created scrapes quite unnecessarily for the sheer hell of it. So I drank too much for years. And despite the full awareness of this, right from the start, right from the start, I was living in Germany when my drinking really took off. I was not living with my family. I was living for various reasons with essentially a strange family and I put them uh, through hell would be putting it too strongly, but I was extremely inconvenient. I was a real nuisance coming back at two o'clock in the morning, three o'clock in the morning from the nearby city where I'd been drinking. And right from the beginning, I kept setting myself the agenda, drink less. Okay, get drunk, but you don't need to get so drunk that you throw up and fall over and make a fool of yourself. Um, But it didn't happen. I'm not stupid. I'm not mad. And I'm not weak-willed. I can conclude only, therefore, that the reason I drink so much is because that's how I'm built. Uh, I can't put it down to stupidity because I'm not stupid. I can't put it down to not having a strong will. I got incredibly strong. You've got to have a strong will to drink the way I drank because it put me through hell. You've really got to have some guts to be an alcoholic. (laughs) Um, uh, And although I behaved foolishly and there were times I did worry about my sanity, I wasn't in this insane in the sense of being unable to put two and two together and know what my own name was. I, I could see that alcohol was a major cause of many of my problems, certainly exacerbated many existing problems. So I must conclude I drink the way I drink because that's how I'm built. So when it says a physical craving, the craving it's referring to is not the craving for a drink. Someone in the office may say, oh, mid-afternoon, I crave chocolate. So I go to the supermarket and buy a bounty. Someone explained that to the Americans afterwards. I buy a bounty, bring it back and eat it. Now, that's a description of craving in the language in general. You want something very badly and you go and get it and you consume it and then you're good. You're good for another six hours or 12 hours or however long. The craving that it's talking about in the big book, in the doctor's opinion particularly, is quite a different matter. I could be bumbling along through my day and someone suggests a drink and I casually take a drink. I don't particularly want one, but I I would casually take one. And the craving would be precipitated by the drink. It is not the thing which causes me to drink. It is started by the drink in the same way that sometimes you have a tiny little itch. You don't even know you have an itch, but you scratch the itch without thinking about it. Once you've scratched it, the itch becomes worse and you think, oh, dear, that was a mosquito bite. I shouldn't have scratched it because now I've scratched it. It's going to get really itchy. And the craving, the physical craving it talks about in the big book, is a craving which is precipitated by the first drink. And the more I drank, the the stronger that urge to drink became. So it's very different than uh, craving a a pudding after dinner. And you have your pudding, and then you're done with pudding now. You've had one pudding. That's enough. Thank you very much. Uh, It's a very odd craving because it is not satisfied by giving yourself the thing that you're craving. The, the consumption yielding to the craving amplifies the craving. Very frightening. Why do they say it's a physical craving? Um, it was a, it's conjecture that it's physical in origin. In other words, that it, if I'm doing anything, broadly speaking, I'm either doing it because I've thought it through or I'm doing it because it's automatic. So I breathe. Automatically. I digest my tea automatically. I that my tea. Yet. It's going to be a late dinner tonight. Uh, I do it automatically. If someone taps you on the shoulder, you swing round. You don't think about, shall I swing round? Shan't I? You just do it. Um, sometimes there are automatic things that you do, even though your mind is telling you not to. Sometimes when people insult you, your mind is saying, don't say anything, don't say anything, don't say and your mouth says something. Thought through or automatic, there is something going on with my drinking. It wasn't thought through. I wasn't thinking through the 20th drink, the 40th drink. I was just doing it. I was like an animal on a treadmill. Physical craving. It is beyond my mind to manage. Fine. This is one half of alcoholism. The other half is the so-called mental obsession. Um, Now, if I say I'm obsessed with Maria Callas, the opera singer, or heaven forbid, Beyonce, whoever she is, it means my room is covered in posters of these people. I have all of their, their records and I listen to their records all day long because I'm obsessed with so in the language generally, obsession means preoccupation. You're thinking about it all the time. I was not thinking about alcohol all the time. But as soon as I thought about it, I did it. Uh, the obsession that it's talking about in the book is, it is a form of obsession, but it, it, it uses the word rather oddly. It's an idea which is not eradicated by experience, like a stain. On the light, on the linoleum which however much bleach you pour on it the stain remains and the idea is very simple a drink is a good idea drink is good for me it benefits me that's the idea doesn't matter how many years of rotten drinking i had that thought was persistent and what's worse If it wasn't the second thing, we wouldn't have a problem. The second thing, not only is it persistent, it's overwhelming. It's like someone sitting next to you when you're driving and they grab the steering wheel and yank. So the obsession is a thought that won't let go. It can be asleep for days, weeks, months or years for those of you who have been sober for years. Uh, It can be asleep for years, but when it wakes up, it grabs the steering wheel. What does that mean? It means it suggests that a drink is a good idea and induces me to drink. Left to my own devices, untreated alcoholism is a condition in which I am condemned. At a point in time, I do not choose. I'm condemned to having a drink when I drink I don't know if I will ever stop. If that be the case, I'm toast. I'm going to drink, and when I drink, I may never stop. Um, I've got friends who relapsed, alcoholic friends who relapsed in the mid-90s and are still drinking. So were I to drink tonight, there is no certainty I would come back to AA. Now, this is a very grave situation. At any point, the thought of a drink might occur to me in an untreated state and drive me to drink. Even in a treated state, the thought will still occur, but if you're treated, there'll be a defense. I'll come to that later on. So just because one has recovered doesn't mean the thought of drinking will not return but there's a difference between a thought of drinking and an overwhelming drive to drink. The first one is innocuous, the second one is deadly. And it's this combination of the two features which makes me an alcoholic. If I were compelled to drink, yet drank only one glass, a lot of my family is French. And what we do in France is we have a drink every day. And you try, you try saying to some of my Parisian family, don't have a drink. They look at you, they, they're you're stupid. Why, why, why would you ever suggest not having a glass of wine with dinner? You barbarians. Uh, but they're not compelled to drink beyond that glass. Often they won't finish that glass. There are people that mix the wine with water on the French side of my family. Uh, So being compelled to drink is not a problem unless you drink too much. Drinking too much is not a problem unless you drink. If you've got either one of those, welcome to AA, because there's obviously something up. But it's the combination which makes me an alcoholic of the type described amply in the big book. So this is alcoholism from a diagnostic point of view. We now have alcoholism from a prognostic point of view. If you've ever had a medical condition and gone to a doctor who uses long words, they'll use the words diagnosis and prognosis. Diagnosis is what's wrong with you. Prognosis is what's going to happen if we don't treat it. And the three key words for the prognosis are that alcoholism is progressive, it's fatal, and it's incurable. The progression I could see quite well in the early days of my drinking. I was able to contain my drinking to situations where the damage would be minimal. So I was able not to drink to excess in front of my family who were touchy about alcoholics because of my uh, brother, who was an alcoholic who committed suicide. So my family were not people. It was enjoyable to get drunk in front of, because there would, there, would be, there would be tension that they would be tense, and then I would be tense. No point in getting drunk when they were there. At the end of my drinking, even though they were there, I was getting drunk, I could see the progression, I needed more and more of the substance, I was getting less and less of an effect. And my ability to rein it in, even when I desperately wanted to, was diminishing hugely. Um, progressive, and that was by 21. My last drink. So you know, add 10, 20, 30 years. Good luck. Progressive, uh, incurable. I'll cover first. It was the third one I mentioned. I'll cover it first. The reason I'm pretty convinced it's incurable is I'm compulsive. About all sorts of other things other than alcohol. And those have been brought nicely under control with the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. Thank you very much. Turns out that the God of AA is the God of everything. Uh, And so I'm not currently acting out in any of the other compulsions and haven't for, for some time. But I know with every single other compulsion, Uh, the the Suzanne Vega line don't uncork what you can't contain and I cannot contain those behaviors I'm not going to go into details but if I start I'm set off again I'm exactly the way I was I mustn't go near certain behaviors I was like that with cigarettes When I started smoking cigarettes again at seven years sober, it took me seven years to stop. I was trying from seven years and one day of smoking to stop. And it took me seven years to stop because it's very powerful. Addiction, in my case, is very powerful. If it's reactivated, I can't stop it. And that was after seven years of not smoking, or six years of not smoking. So I know that doesn't matter how long I've been away from a behavior. I've had that with other behaviors as well. Doesn't matter how long I'm I'm away from the behavior. It's like the Formula One track hasn't been dismantled. There's just a piece of yellow and black tape across the entrance. As soon as the car gets on the track, round and round and round it goes. So it's incurable from that point of view. Uh, I've noted with the other addictions and also with alcohol, The notion that a drink might be safe will still occasionally occur to me. I don't appear to be cured of that thought. So I need a treatment which persists over time, not just one to knock it on its head and then off I toddle on my merry way. I need something which is going to endure for as long as my physical form endures. So progressive, incurable. And here's the main point of this talk, fatal. And the third feature, prognostic feature of alcoholism. And I've sponsored a lot of people over the years who have come to me as someone that that I've been around not the longest time, but not the shortest time either. And if someone is a slipper in a a relapse or in a particular part of A, they tend to go down the chain and they end up, many of them, with the the, the person, that's the longest sober person. in the room is the person, certainly in terms of time, with the most experience. And sometimes that helps and sometimes it doesn't. And there's a wonderful line in the big book, for us, we alcoholics, for, for us to drink is to die. And I ask this question of relapses. And, you know, they say that they, every single one has said the same thing. Or actually, it's a range of things. They've ne- I've never had a relapse, I'd, to my recollection, I've never had a relapse who said, yes, absolutely. If I were to drink, I literally may never stop. I'm terrified, drink they have always said a number of other things. Yes, for me to drink is to die. Eventually, eventually it would get me. It, I, it, I'm not that bad right now, but at some point, yes, I'm sure. I'm sure it probably it probably would. Or they say, well, well, yes, yes, it would kill me, but. It's, it's not that, it's the spiritual death that frightens me so much. I'm just frightened of dying spiritually. But the third thing, I hope I'm not going to be controversial in this, heaven forbid that there should be controversy in any. They'll say, yes, but it's my love addiction which is the real problem. Or you could substitute half a dozen other fashionable complaints 30 years ago it was a different roster but the principle is the same the alcoholism there's a meeting around here it's a very nice meeting but they say we came for the drinking but stayed for the thinking as though the drinking has somehow ceased to be a problem it's just a a, a, a trivial hurdle at the entrance gate to aa once you've you've Leapt over that like a spring lamb. Then you're now you're dealing with the real problem, which is your thinking. I don't know. Um, for me, it always was about the drinking. It remains about the drinking. Now there are other problems, but I'll come to what role they play in my recovery and solving. It. What role that plays in my recovery? But people, the people who've slipped that I've talked to, at least until they've had the last one, they don't say, yeah, absolutely, drink will kill me. And I was a slipper. First two and a half years trying to stay sober on my own. And the last six months, with the aggregate effort of Alcoholics Anonymous in London and in St. Petersburg in Russia, they had a go at me as well. That's another story for another day. Um, But the aggregate efforts of a lot of people, and my own efforts, resulted in yet another drink. On the 24th of July, 1993, I remember sitting in someone's car outside a meeting on that day after I'd been released from the cells, the police cells, to which I'd been taken. I was arrested for my behaviour when I was drunk. I said to Brian, for it was Brian whose car it was, I said to him, I don't know what went wrong. I was doing so well. And he said, you were doing very well, except with the not drinking bit of the programme. I remember a few days later saying to angry Sue, I, I, I'd heard the phrase for me to drink is to die. And she said, if you're lucky. And what scared me was one of two possibilities. There were other possibilities, too. One isn't a fortune teller. There are two distinct possibilities amongst the array. One of them is this. I could drink and die that day. And on the last day I drank, I threw myself in front of a fast moving car. And I was very lucky I wasn't killed. I've known many people who have died on the day that they drank. At the other end of the scale is the possibility of having a drink and never being able to come back, but spending the rest of my life trying to come back into AA, sitting in meetings drunk, but not getting it, because I saw that too. These twin extremes of dying of alcoholism straight away or dying of alcoholism, or dying with alcoholism after years of suffering, which I was, and everyone else was attempting to remedy, terrified me. What those two cases, those hypothetical cases have in common, is to have a drink means giving up my last chance for sobriety. This period I've had in AA since 1993, I treat as my last attempt at sobriety. The reason I treat it as that is because there is no guarantee that I would return and how I would die and when I would die would be entirely out of my hands, terrifying. This is the nature of alcoholism. When someone realizes, as I did, I might literally never come back, for a variety of reasons, physical reasons, brain damage. In London, a very common, I've known many people in AA who on a slip have thrown themselves in front of a tube train, some have died, the rest have been brain damaged or disfigured. I've known people who've died of overdoses, who've fallen down the stairs and cracked their heads open, of people who developed wet brains, of people who have lost their minds in other ways, of who, people who became, who were successful, this, this is, or successful that's, who became bag people pushing shopping trolleys around. It can get you in so many ways. But the point is, if I were to have one, just one drink, the game could be over. I cannot proceed on the assumption that I'm going to be given a second chance. So this is a very serious matter. We haven't even got to the worst bit. The worst bit is this, and we've circled around it, but I want to nail this point on the head. All it takes is one thought followed by my acting on that thought. I I don't know how many thoughts a person has a day. Uh, One hears different statistics, 30,000, 50,000, 70,000. I think I've got friends where it may just be seven or eight, but anyway, that's another question. Uh, Certainly, I have many thousands of thoughts a day. If I'm alive 365 days a year for many years to come, or maybe a couple of years to come, or maybe one day to come, whatever. That's a lot of thoughts. My life depends on not having one thought over those years to come that converts into the action of taking a drink. Not only must I avoid that thought, I must avoid the unconscious, automated reaction which would induce me to have a drink. I'll give you an example. People will sometimes say, uh, if I if I'm restless, irritable, and discontented, I'm going to have a drink again. Well, I tell you, a lot of people who have relapses were not restless, irritable, and discontent on the day they, they relapse. They're at a wedding. Someone offers them a glass and they take it and they drink it. There's no thought at all, no conscious thought. There's no there is a thought, but it's there's no metacognition of it. One isn't aware of the thought. Now, if one takes all of these facts together, one is left with one, just one, devastating conclusion. How I live, very literally, the actions I take must not be in my hands ever again for one moment. If I am in charge, for one moment, and that in chargeness coincides with just a little fluttering thought which converts into action. That is the end of me. The and there won't be trumpets. I've heard people say in meetings, I'm feeling this, I'm doing that, I haven't pulled my sponsors since the Ford administration, but I don't feel like a drink, so I'm have you noticed? Whenever a, a strong thought occurs to you, the moment before you had the strong thought, you weren't having the strong thought. That's how you notice the strong thought, when you suddenly remember something, or you suddenly realize you want to do something. The moment before you had the thought, there was no augury. there was no presage, there was no harbinger. There was no advance notice of the thought that's about to occur to you. The point about thoughts occurring to you is there is no warning. They're suddenly there. Now, if that thought is a command, that's very frightening. So I need a solution. (laughs) I know now some of you are from New York, and I know that in New York, they say we wish you a long, slow recovery. No, I needed a quick recovery. In other words, I needed one that was going to kick in immediately to keep me safe from alcohol. And the only thing that I found to achieve this is complete surrender to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, The question here is, therefore, what does complete surrender entail? Um, In step three, it talks about turning our wills and our lives over to the care of God. And a very good, I, I find this very, very helpful, this idea that the two things which must be turned over are Number one, my thought life, and I'll come back to that. Number two, my actions. And AA, was, AA got me through the first year. I mean, it's got me through the rest. But the first year very much surprised me because it was the first year I'd been sober since I had my first drink. How did it achieve this? I was so terrified after my last slip that I decided I was simply going to do precisely what AA told me to do. And combined with the principle that uh, I must make an active decision uh, that I was going to not drink no matter what, that my, if all else, Failed. I was to get to bed tonight without a drink. Now, you might protest with some legitimacy, but weren't you powerless over alcohol? Well, you're powerless until you're given power. Once you're given power, you're no longer powerless. You have power. It's, it's given power, not innate power, but it is given and what does that power consist in it can well first of all um i was encouraged to devise my daily schedule or schedule if you're british uh with sane grown-ups so i got a little coterie of people who were sober a long time around me who helped me design my day and design my life and then the to, to not die of alcoholism means to not have the first drink. If you happen to recover from all your psychological do-dos, well, good for you. But there's time enough for that. To not die, I had to not drink. To not drink, I had to be given a sufficient substitute. And this is the channel for the power. I cannot hide behind the powerlessness suggested by step one, but that's powerlessness in the absence of power. Once you're given power, you cannot plead powerlessness. But it does require some courage. So what I was to do and what I did do, this is why exactly what I do with Sponsees today, is uh, to have a daily plan and my job was simply to do the next thing on the plan. And my plan when I was new was very, very simple. I started work at 7.30 in the morning. And I lived a little way out of London, uh, not right in the middle. So I had to get up at 5.45, I think, to to get in for 7.30. So I'd get up at 5.45, get myself ready, get to the train, get to work, work at work, uh, go to a lunchtime meeting if I could. If I couldn't go to a lunchtime meeting to listen to an AA tape. And then after work, I would uh, listen to my AA tape or read my AA book and go and sit outside the meeting until it started. And then I'd be at the meeting. And then after the meeting, I'd go out for coffee with people. And then I'd get the train home and read my little AA book and go to sleep. And at the weekend, it was very similar, except there was no job So at the weekend. So I would go to three meetings or four meetings or five meetings and read my little AA book and listen to my little AA tapes of speakers that Maureen made for me. And of course, I needed to do a few other things. I needed to do a spot of laundry and cook the occasional meal. But essentially, I was given a a schedule. All I had to do was what I was told. and have the courage to withstand the pain of doing so that's the key and so a lot of the advice I got in the first year sometimes we will say people say AA we don't give advice of course we do what we don't do is tell people precisely what to do about their difficulty with Janet so that's a, a completely different topic but we give Vast amounts of advice about how to stay sober, how to work the steps, preferably from our own experience. But I'll tell you, I've had some really good advice from people who were not taking the advice themselves. My first sponsor gave me brilliant advice. I took it and stayed sober. He didn't take it, he got drunk. People said, Did this shape your faith in AA? I said, No, our respective experiences prove that what he said was true. If you do this, you will stay sober. If you don't, you will get drunk. I was exhibit A, he was exhibit B. It was very painful in the first year. I was tortured by my own mind a lot of the time. Well, there we have it. All it is is pain. I'm not going to kill you. Um, I had to develop the courage, which is, in fact, a decision to withstand that pain and in my case, because I'm male, to man up to it. I don't know what the... the, the I, I know women often say that men have no threshold for pain. <laughs> I think that may be true. I think that's scientifically proven. That's pretty safe ground for that one. But you get the point. I basically had to put my big boy's panties on, grow up a little, and, not, and cease demanding that, that my pain be relieved instantly because I found my pain disagreeable. Why should it be? I should it. I was going to have to get through this, and whatever means was necessary had to be deployed. I made a lot of phone calls in the first year. We didn't have cell phones or mobile phones. We had little in London, little green phone cards, and we knew where all the phone boxes were. We carried around a little list with us. One day, I was in a phone box, and I spent whatever it was, my whole of my phone card, and I called 17 people and got 17 answer machines and left 17 messages on 17 answer machines and went and sat outside the meeting for two hours, thinking, all I have to do is sit here for another five minutes. All I have to do is sit here for another five minutes. I did that until I was in the meeting, knowing that at some point in the meeting, there would be a moment of relief. Maybe I'd be relieved for the whole meeting. Maybe I'd then be relieved for a day or a week or an hour. And then it would be back again. But because I knew there were moments of reprieve, as Primo Levi refers to, moments of reprieve, I could withstand the pain and the discomfort until then. I did not have an easy time not drinking but i was given a sufficient substitute and all i had to do was to make the decision to tolerate the consequences of the decision to stay sober and in my experience the people i've sponsored who slipped in many cases this is my speculation based on a lot of observation, discussion with people. So people report this, an unwillingness to feel pain. Uh, I was very ill physically when I was six, seven years sober. It's connected with why I left AA for various reasons, not to blame AA at all for this, but um, I was very ill. I was in very extreme physical pain and I couldn't take painkillers because of the nature, well, partly my alcoholism, but in any case, because of the nature of what I was suffering from. because my organs would not have been able to process the pharmaceuticals that would have been available. I was lying down uh, for 23 hours, 23 and a half hours a day, able to move around, hobble around for a little bit. I'd be so tired that there'd be a glass of water just a couple of feet away, and I would want to drink the glass of water. My other half would be at work, and I was, I'd was want to drink the glass of water, and it took would take an hour to summon the strength to reach my hand out for the glass of water. I was very, very unwell, unlinked to my alcoholism. But as soon as I accepted that I was ill, that I might die, I was in pain, that this could, if it were to clear my system, it would take months, that I could be impaired for a couple of years, I might remain susceptible. As soon as I accepted the pain, it became tolerable. The intolerability of pain is a decision that I make, it is not conditioned by the pain, in my experience, Others people's experience may be different. This is just my construal of my experience. And it was like that in my first year in AA, when I accepted that it was going to be rough and buckled up because of the hope that it might be worth it. I was able to tolerate the, the apparently, the previously intolerable. The reason I've gone on a lot, firstly, about the severity of alcoholism, and in particular about this point about tolerating pain, is we're very eloquent in AA these days about the big book, and about the 12 steps, and about the mechanics, and about the third column of the resentment inventory, and the, the, the these and the those. We're very good. A lot of this material simply wasn't about 30 years ago, uh, it was lost in corners of AA, but was not universal by any. It was not universal. Certainly, in London. Very few people did the steps exactly out of the big. Book. In fact, I didn't meet any until I was until many years later. There had been a ring, but I would never met them. Now, you know, every Tom, Dick, and Harry works the steps out of the big. I tell you, most of the slippers that I've worked with. Uh, know the big book in and out. It's not about knowledge, there's something else. But it's getting over the hump. Once you've got over the hump of those first few months of uh, basically really, really wanting to drink and or really, really wanting to not be alive. I did not want, I thought of suicide constantly in my first year i had thought of suicide constantly before i ever drank certainly during my drinking it was a, it was it was my thought of suicide was my companion oddly comforting um and it took a while for that to go the depression took years to go the anxiety took years to go. But right from the beginning, there were two things that were different. Number one, what I refer to as these moments of reprieve. They appeared out of nowhere. I experienced, even my very earliest days, meetings at which I was prof- profoundly joyful and profoundly connected to the people in the room. So I knew it was possible. And not because during the meeting my circumstances had changed. This is very important. In full knowledge of my circumstances, my past, all of those things, I was capable of joy and release. Secondly, the recovery that I was experiencing was progressive. And so having a couple of brain cells to rub together, I did the calculation and realized if I carry on, this is going to progress. The periods of reprieve and release are going to get longer. They're going to join up like small droplets forming pools or puddles and then rivers. And eventually I'm going to get to a point where my life as a whole appears to me to be worthwhile. It is the direction I was traveling in which made it possible to essentially withstand my first year in AA. Um, and the years after. So it is not the state I was in that matters, it was the direction in which I was traveling. A couple of other points. Uh, the easiest thing to say about how to work the programme, I'm just gonna machine gun this out now because I've only got a few minutes left. And as I say, what I'm about to say is well and expansively documented by most speakers. So this is why I wanted to, to say things which are not talked about so often. To get a strong home group, surround oneself With people who are doing better than one, who look for what is good in life, not what is bad, who are living in the present, not the past, for people that grab spiritual and altruistic solutions, not, uh, shall we say, analytical or other extraneous solutions. Other organizations and approaches look at alcoholism differently. The solution in AA is let go and serve and this is where those other life problems come into the equation i didn't need to solve all of my other problems of living in order to stay sober and solving them would not in themselves bring about sobriety this is very important because I've met people, I've friends of mine, one friend in particular, who was eight years sober and had a few drinks and was out for two years. He was more competent at living then than he had ever been. He had very few problems. The reason that those problems need to be solved is because they're in the way of me serving God. If you have a very messy kitchen, you can't cook a good meal. You need to clean the kitchen up first before you can do anything. So, clearing up my other problems is a very satisfying byproduct of what is required to stay sober. What is required to stay sober is to serve God. And I know people in AA, I'm not going to name names. I know people in AA who are terrific servants of God and are very happy and are still very, very messed up and have a lot of problems, but they're going in the right direction. And of course, there are people in AA who who are doing very well in their lives, but don't sponsor, for instance, and don't do service in groups. Um, That's just a fact not a moral assessment. It's simply a fact. Um, this higher power to me is what the whole thing is about. This surrender to the actions of AA was the necessary proxy until I could surrender directly to God. I could not, in my state I was in when I was new, conceive of a higher power. I'm sorry, but I just couldn't but I did trust my sponsor and the other old timers and that worked now I didn't put them on a pedestal or worship them directly I recognized dimly that any or all of them were substitutable if they disappeared others would appear and they did disappear some of them and others did appear there will always be some. And it's taken a very, very long time for me to form a relationship with God, slower than almost anyone I know, but I do have one. It's probably quite tenuous, frankly, but it's there and it's direct, but I couldn't achieve that straight away. I needed to go by, it's like with expressionist artists. If you look at their earliest work, they do still lives and landscapes, just like everyone else, and ordinary portraits. They only go onto the fancy stuff, once they've learned the basics. And I think AA is like that. It's important, it was important for me to learn how to live an ordinary, worthwhile life based on what I can give, not what I can get. It goes without saying that the steps must be done promptly under the supervision of a competent sponsor, an adequately competent sponsor. You don't have to like them. In fact, if you do like them, it'll get in the way. So and someone you feel a little bit chilly towards maybe um but then you won't mind them telling you to do things because you're expecting it um but what i will say about long-term sobriety and other addictions i know a lot of people go to lots of different fellowships and that's fine and and like in my case i i I do go to alan as well but i don't need a different fellowship for every single practical problem in my life Uh, I go through the steps once a quarter, the first nine steps. The the 10, 11, and 12 are the constant bread and butter of my life. But the first nine steps, I revisit once a quarter, or if the process takes a little while, then I reset the clock. So I have three-month gaps between going through the first nine steps. Sometimes it takes a couple of days. Sometimes it takes longer. At the moment, I'm doing slightly longer. Process. I'm looking at some materials of an old AA member called Dennis F. I find him very, very helpful, so I'm taking it at a more, not at a more leisurely pace, because I'm putting in a lot of time to it, but I'm allowing the process to take up more time. Um, I've been through the sets many times, and I've never got bored of them. The two factors which i believe are vital to ensure long term sobriety are uh, number one to redo the steps the first nine steps on a regular basis well i mean some people do it once a year i don't like things to build up also various reasons probably to do with my childhood i don't know i'm not a psychologist my propensity for Uh deviating from the true path of serving God is enormous. I'm quick as well. I go a long way when I drift, I don't drift, I gallop. So I go through this process once a quarter because I can I can gallop in three months, as far as some people take five or ten years to gallop. I have to be quite careful with myself. So three months is fine. I bring myself back. But, the, but this, the next point I think is, is also terribly important. One thing that, and this may be a little bit shocking, so if you don't like things which are shocking, maybe cover your ears. Um, are people I've known who are in very great trouble after many years in, some, some of them sober and in trouble, others have been drinking periodically and have never really gotten properly sober. The most common thing that people say is, I've done the steps many times. It's almost invariably the case that that's said. When you interrogate, kindly of course, but you've got to get to the bottom of things, did you ever complete a thorough, rigorous, painstaking steps eight and nine, with no exceptions, no unreasonable get-outs, going to every length, every tiny slight, every tiny theft. I can see the hour, thank you Tamara, I'll finish on, finish presently. The answer is invariably no. So the truth is the steps have been started many times and not finished once. So when I go through the steps, I finish those first nine steps until I'm at a point where my accounts with others and with God are cleared. And only then can I live. Thank you for listening.